if you've gotten nothing from this series in Ephesians. I hope that you've heard loud and clear that in the church God is doing something new. He is making something new. He's making something new from a sociological perspective. In the church, there's a group of people who may be culturally, economically, ethnically diverse from a human perspective, but in the eyes of God, they constitute one new man, one new race of people bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, washed by his blood, made new on the basis of his sacrifice for us on the cross. God is doing something new in the church. Spiritually and individually in each one of us, God is doing something new. Before coming to faith in Christ, we were, as the Bible says, dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead to God, enemies of God, rejected by God, and there's nothing that we could have done about it. No work that we could have done to earn his favor. No amount of comparison between us and another sinner would do. We were dead to him. In Christ, he has chosen some of us who were dead, paid for our sins in Jesus, made us alive together with Jesus, sealed us in his spirit, given us gifts to be a part of erecting this new building that he's putting together. He gives us grace that empowers us to do that and to do the good works that he's called for us to walk in. Spiritually, God is doing something new in the church. Because that is true, we are called to walk in the newness of that life. We are commanded to do things that we could not have done before our faith in Christ. We're commanded to walk or to live in a way that pleases God with renewed minds, walking in his truth, walking in love for one another, a love that imitates his love, walking as children of the light. God is doing something new in the church. Therefore, we ought to walk in the newness of life as his people. In our text for this morning, we are reminded that this kind of life requires significant care and attention. This kind of walk requires significant thought and deliberate action. This kind of life requires wisdom. Therefore, we are exhorted in our text for this morning to walk in wisdom. If you haven't turned there already, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Our text for this morning is going to be found in verses 15 through 21. I'll read those for us and then we'll look at it a little more closely. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 through 21. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let us pray. Father, once again, we come before you as we come before your word. And we pray, God, that you would speak for your servants are listening. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus name. Amen. In this text, we are commanded to walk in wisdom. Wisdom. 
taking care with how we think about life and our love for one another. We walk in wisdom by, number one, regarding the times rightly. That's in verses 15 and 16. Number two, regarding the will of the Lord rightly in verse 17. And number three, regarding one another rightly in verses 18 through 21. Regarding the times rightly, regarding the will of the Lord rightly, and regarding one another rightly. Let's take a look at that first point. We walk in wisdom by regarding the times rightly. Look again at verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. He says, look carefully how you walk. The then in the section is translated from the same word that we've seen frequently throughout this last half of the letter and is typically translated as therefore. This is the link between this section and the previous sections. Paul is continuing his conversation about how we walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. To walk, as we have said before, is to live in a certain kind of way. We need to live in a way that displays the work of Christ in our lives. He says, look at this, pay attention to this, take care with this, be actively thinking about this one thing, that is how you walk or how you live. Do not take it for granted. The Christian life is not a life of coasting. It is a life of actively pursuing a certain kind of walk, a certain kind of life, knowing that you live before the face of God daily, that he always sees you. You do not have the luxury as a Christian of disregarding how you live. You do not have the luxury as a Christian of living any way you want to. You must live with care, with thoughtfulness, with precision. One author said it this way, the word rendered carefully signifies something done accurately, precisely, or close attention has been given to. Together with the imperative watch, it indicates this admonition regarding godly behavior is both important and urgent, end quote. We could easily gloss over all of these commands, all of these walks, and think that they're for someone else that they are for when I get around to it, that they are to be done if and when I have the time and opportunity. That's how people treat church nowadays. God knows how busy my life is, so I get a pass. Or God knows how much difficulty I have in life, so I get a pass. No. All of these things, all of these commands to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ underscore what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to do this. These are things that you ought to do. Therefore, you must pay careful attention to how you live and you must actively pursue a life that looks like this. This is a matter of urgency. This is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is careful with how they walk in life, careful to walk in wisdom and not foolishness. Well, what is wisdom? Again, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. What is wisdom? Well, we know that God is wise. In Proverbs chapter 3 that we had read earlier, Solomon said that it is by wisdom that God created all things. He says, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds drop down the dew. Paul says that God's wisdom is unsearchable. In Romans 11, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unscrutable are his ways. And in the context, he's talking about the salvation that he has 
planned and purposed in Christ. God in his wisdom created all things. God in his wisdom devised a plan of salvation that involves his perfect son, Jesus Christ, as a substitute for us. The wisdom of God is offered to humanity, and there is a blessing to those who find it. Again, we read that from Proverbs 3. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you can desire compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. In general, the wisdom of man is often referred to as skillful living. Wisdom would be distinguished from knowledge in a sense that one can have knowledge but not be wise. One can know what a bicycle is, that people ride bicycles, that there is the need for air in a tire, a need to have the handlebars aligned properly, and a need to have working brakes. One can also know that you need to put your feet in the pedals and push in order to be able to move but have no practical idea of how to actually ride a bike. The ability to use the knowledge that you have effectively to ride the bike is called wisdom. Biblically, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. One can know that there is a thing called life, that they are alive, that they walk about, talk, engage with other people, they go places, they become successful in the eyes of other people, but if they do not fear the Lord, then it cannot be said that they have wisdom. Knowledge and the use of that knowledge skillfully are two completely different things. In order to use that knowledge skillfully, you have to have a healthy fear of the Lord. That's where it begins. Solomon answers the question, why, in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, after all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, whether everything, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He says we need in life not just wisdom in general, But biblical wisdom, true wisdom, and biblical wisdom, true wisdom begins with a fear of the Lord. If you live life without a fear of the Lord, then you're going to live life without the realization that God is going to bring everything that you do into judgment in the end and that you will have to face him for that. That's where wisdom begins. That's where living skillfully begins. Practically speaking, then, the difference between wisdom and foolishness is that wisdom always considers the end before acting. Prior to any deed, again, whether it is public or private, wisdom considers the end result of that deed and specifically considers that God will bring every deed into judgment. Foolishness, on the other hand, considers nothing. It does not consider the end. A fool is one who acts impulsively, rashly, without consideration, without thought. They have a whim, they have a desire, and they run quickly to fulfill that desire without consideration of what comes in the end. James says that the world's wisdom is like that. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's not oriented toward God nor the things of God. 
He says, in fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that the world through its wisdom cannot even come to know God. Biblical wisdom pays careful attention to its deeds. And we typically think of Proverbs as being just for children. It's written from a father to a child, and yet it has wisdom necessary for all of us. Think again about the words in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. That was one of the first verses I memorized as a child because I was an utter fool as a child and the Lord saw fit to give me a mother who didn't want a fool as a child and so she encouraged me very uh, adamantly often to read through the Proverbs. Wisdom pays careful attention to its deeds and in all of its ways acknowledges the Lord. And our family would go out when our kids were very young If we would go out to a playground or something of that nature, for example, we would often remind the kids to make sure that they stayed close to us, that they had eyes on us and we had eyes on them. And they came to learn over time that if they wanted to go off to do something in an area of the playground that we were not in, they would have to consult with us first. And so they would do that every single time. If they wanted to go off to do something else, they would acknowledge us. They would look to us for that permission And then they would go off and do it. That's the picture in Proverbs. Acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways and he will make straight your paths. Back to Ephesians. Again, Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Don't be a fool. Do not act rashly, impulsively. Do not live as children of the darkness. Do not pursue immorality. Do not speak with filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. As you're caught up in the moment, do not let bitterness or wrath, anger, clamor, slander or malice pour forth from you in a moment of rage. Look carefully how you walk. They, the unbelievers, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you have learned Christ. I wonder how you're doing with that, Christian. Are you wise or a fool? You carefully consider your actions and what will result if you pursue this thing or that. Do you carefully consider your words and what will result if you speak those words? Do you carefully consider that what you allow your mind to meditate on and what will result if you continue down that path? Again, that is the difference between wisdom and foolishness. Carefully considering the end before you pursue. We are to think about our lives. We are to think about our life decisions. Think about our actions. Think about where we are going and what we are desiring. We are to take care with those thoughts. That is wisdom. Paul goes on in our text. He says we are to walk as wise, not as unwise, making the best use of our time because the days are evil. We need to make the best use of our time. In other words, we must redeem the time. How we use our time is significant, and that requires careful attention. We are here for a purpose, and that purpose has already been laid out for us. The reality is that we have a very limited time to participate in God's purposes in this world. 
and those who are wise acknowledge that. One author said this in commenting on this passage, quote, Paul did not here use chronos, the term for a clock time, the continuous time that is measured in hours, minutes, or seconds. He rather used kairos, which denotes a measured, allocated, fixed season or epoch. The idea of a fixed period is also seen in the use of the definite article in the Greek, which refers to the time, a concept often found in scriptures. He says, God has set boundaries to our lives, and our opportunity for service exists only within these boundaries. End quote. Remember, the Christian ought to desire to do what is pleasing to God. We looked at that in the previous section. The wise know that they have a limited time to do what is pleasing to God, and therefore they seek to make the best use of the time they have not squandering their time or assuming that they have time, which is not promised, as does the fool, but redeeming their time for God's purposes. I wonder how much time we waste in a day, how much time we waste in a week. Let's say, being realistic, that we only waste one hour in a day. Instead of wasting that one hour in front of the television or stuffing our face with snacks or scrolling through Facebook feed, we redeem that time for Christ's sake. That's one hour a day, seven hours a week, 365 days in a year that we can use for the glory of God. What more could you accomplish for his glory in that 365 hours? A five-minute phone call to encourage a brother or sister in Christ only takes up a small fraction of that time. A five-minute note written and dropped in the mail to encourage someone else. A visit to someone's home that takes a duration of an hour or more when you have seven hours to spare in a week. A trip out to the grocery store, a walk down Main Street to pass out invitations to church or tracks. What could you do with that additional hour in a day that you usually waste for the glory of God? Paul says we are to redeem the time. Well, again, what are those purposes of God? We've discussed this a number of times before in the letter, and it centers around the idea of the wisdom that God has poured out in his church. Chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Or chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is what Paul prays, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He says in chapter 3, verse 10, so that through the church, The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. These texts tell us that the wisdom of God has made known the mystery of his will. That is the uniting of all things in Christ. Paul prays that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, that we would know God better, know his purposes better. And again, in chapter 3, he speaks of his own calling as an apostle to proclaim the mystery of Christ in the unfolding mystery in the birth of the church, putting those eternal purposes of God on display to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In other words, the wisdom of God, again, which was previously hidden mystery, 
this wisdom God communicates to the church, this wisdom that God is communicating to the church is the church itself and Jesus Christ as head over all. That's God's plan. That's his purpose. That's his desire that Jesus Christ would rule over all, that all things would be united under his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to look carefully then how we walk. We are to take care with how we walk, redeeming the time, not being unwise, but being wise. Again, wisdom is found in considering the end of all things before acting. Biblically, that means considering the judgment of God, his plans, and his purposes. The big picture end for which God revealed to the church and which the church ought to carefully consider at all times and in every way, the big picture idea of what God is doing in the world today is building his church and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to be purposeful in being a part of that plan in living in such a way that we help to work out that plan. He moves on. He says that we ought to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. We should not be wasteful. We should not waste our time, and in the context, wasting our time is to live as fools, failing to consider all of our ways, failing to consider our ways in the context of God's purposes in this world, his purposes for the church. We need to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. The days are full of people who reject the person of Christ, who reject God, his purposes. That shouldn't be so for us. These days are full of those who do not consider their ways in the context of God's judgment. His purpose is to magnify Jesus Christ as head over all. It is full of those who do not care or concern themselves with any of these things. They are ruled, according to Ephesians 2, by the prince of the power of the air. They go according to the course of this world. They live in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And they are, for that reason, children of wrath. They care nothing for Christ. And all the more, they are becoming increasingly hostile to Christ, to the gospel and the church. We, therefore, as God's people, must be careful to redeem the time that we have to live for his glory. Again, God has plans and purposes for his church. We are, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. The work that God does in redeeming us is not for us to have a get-out-of-hell-free card. He doesn't save us to sit and soak. He saves us to serve. He saves us to live for him. The days are evil. We can look at the evil of our days and sit on our hands in despair. We can look at the evil in our days and envy those who do evil and appear to prosper. We can look at the evil in our days and join with them. Those are responses of the fool. The wise says that we must use our time well, considering every thought, word, and deed, and measuring them according to the will and purposes of God. That leads to our next point in verse 17. Yes, we are called to walk in wisdom by regarding the time rightly. Second, we're called to walk in wisdom by regarding the Lord's will rightly. Verse 17, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Therefore, or on account of this, or because of this, in light of this fact, do not become foolish. Avoid foolishness. Do not allow yourself to become a fool by failing to consider your ways, by failing to consider your walk in light of the purposes and plans of God. The Bible says there are two primary marks of a fool. 
The first is flat-out rejection of God altogether, which leads to a life lived in opposition of God. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And what results from that? They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. He says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. A second mark of a fool, which is related, is a rejection of correction and instruction. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool does not want guidance. They do not want to be told what to do. They want to figure things out on their own. They want to chart their own course. They will reject anyone and anything that attempts to tell them how to live and why. They will not acknowledge the plans and purposes of God as a motivation for living. Again, back in our text, Paul says this should not be true of us. Do not become foolish, but rather understand what the will of the Lord is. This is reminiscent, again, of what we discussed last week. We're called to walk as children of the light, chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true and trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. As children of the light, we're called to walk in righteousness. We're called to walk in the knowledge of God and to practice what is good and right and true in the eyes of the Lord. Our desire to be ought to do what is pleasing to the Lord. We do not seek to do what pleases our own self first. We, ple- we do not seek to do what pleases our flesh. We do not seek to do what pleases our neighbor alone. And certainly we do not seek to do what pleases the society around us. As children of the light, as children of God, we are to pursue that which pleases our heavenly father. And that again requires careful consideration of his will in everything that we do. This is what we are to be thinking at all times in every way, in every circumstance. Is this pleasing to the Lord? Is this going to accomplish his will? Is this a part of the good works that God has created for me as a member of his church to walk in? Will this bring glory to Jesus Christ, my head, my king? His word, his will, his way, his plans, his purposes are our delight and our duty, period. That leads to and underscores our last point. Again, we are to walk in wisdom by regarding the time rightly. We are to walk in wisdom by regarding the will of the Lord rightly. Third, we walk in wisdom by regarding one another rightly. Verses 18 through 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now we've seen a number of pairs in this section. Walk not as unwise but as wise. Do not be foolish but understand the will of the Lord. Here we have do not get drunk with wine but be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine. Why is that significant in the context? Well, Paul is trying to be more specific in this section to help them to know exactly how they are to walk in wisdom, how they are to walk carefully, how they are to make the best use of their time, how they cannot be foolish but understand the will of the Lord, pursue the will of the Lord, accomplish his purposes. This has everything to do with our love for one another, our fellowship with, fellowship with one another, our care for one another in the body of Christ. 
All of these things start with our ability to think rightly, to process information rightly, to process God's will rightly, to think through what is good and right and true and pleasing to him, and to do those things, but we can't do those things if we're drunk with wine. Wine was frequently used in their day. It wasn't uncommon to have wine with meals. You were not considered a drunkard for simply drinking wine on occasion. The prohibition in this text, and really in all of Scripture, is not against drinking in general. The prohibition is against drunkenness. We should all know what the difference is. You can drink without becoming drunk. Drunkenness comes with an overindulgence of alcohol such that it dulls your senses, it weakens your inhibitions, it prohibits you from thinking clearly about things that you know to be true. It prohibits you from living life skillfully, living with wisdom. Drunkenness leads to foolishness. Paul says, for that is debauchery. The word translated debauchery means excessiveness, wastefulness. One author said it this way, it has the idea of a disorderly life resulting from a lack of self-control. Most of us who've seen drunkenness, those who are out of control, those who say all manner of foolish things, those who become drunk tend to all manner of foolish actions, things that harm themselves or others. In spite of so many warnings, for example, so many television ads and campaigns, so many movies and videos played during teen drivers' ed classes, accidents due to drunk driving is still a thing. You would think that for all of our technological advance and all of our advance in wisdom and knowledge that we wouldn't drive while we're drunk. But there are still many fools who do that exact thing. We all know that what could happen. But because we are fools, we think that it won't happen to us until it does happen to us. Paul's point is that drunkenness should not characterize the life of a believer because we're called to wisdom and we're called to consider our actions. We're called to think of them and to measure them against the standard of God's will. And particularly, again, here we're called to consider our actions with regard to one another, and you can't do that if you're drunk. Now, while wine is the primary subject in this text, this would, of course, apply to anything that would inhibit your ability to think clearly. So any form of alcohol, any drug, prescription or otherwise, that you take or abuse apart from the direction of a doctor that would inhibit your ability to properly discern the will of the Lord should be avoided because we're called to walk in wisdom. Again, consider the contrast. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, charismatic brothers and sisters have so often stretched the meaning and ministry of the Holy Spirit that we tend not to want to discuss those things pertaining to the Spirit in our non-charismatic circles. But as we pointed out throughout the letter of Ephesians, the Holy Spirit has a significant ministry in the life of believers. He is instrumental in our redemption. He applies the work of Christ to us, washing us, cleansing us, giving us the new birth. He also indwells us. He's the guarantee of our final redemption. He empowers us to do the work of ministry, to use the gifts that have been given to us to build up one another, to serve one another. The Holy Spirit's ministry in our lives is significant. Here Paul says, do not get drunk with wine. Do not allow wine to control you, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to control you. That's the contrast. 
Let the Holy Spirit use you for the glory of God to do the will of God. Well, what does that look like? How do I know when that is happening? What is the result of the filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's not speaking in tongues. It's not prophecy. It's not casting out demons. The result of the filling of the Holy Spirit is simple. It has to do with being used by the Spirit of God to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what we see in the words that Paul says following. He mentions three things. In verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. In other words, a spirit-filled Christian is a singing Christian. Being filled with or controlled with the Holy Spirit leads to joyful worship. It leads to joyful worship that is edifying to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look again at what he says. He says, addressing one another, speaking to one another, communicating with one another. How? By simply talking? No. By singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. He says it this way in Colossians chapter 3 in a parallel passage. Colossians chapter 3 verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. He's not talking to pastors or teachers there. He's talking to every member of the body of Christ that we teach and admonish one another in part by how we sing. I've said this before, but the significance of our worship is not just for us. It's for the glory of God. Paul Paul confirms this in the next phrase. He says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Yes, it is for the glory of God. I think we all understand that. But more than that, worship in the context of the community of the believers, every time we gather together, when we sing in worship, we're singing to praise God. Yes, but we're also singing to one another. Part of our desire in worship ought to be to be a blessing to one another, to encourage one another with the truth that we sing. That's why we sing the songs that we sing. That's why the particular songs that we sing are chosen for each service. We sing songs filled with truth. Songs that will direct our thoughts and minds and our hearts to the truth. We should sing out. We should sing loudly, not just because we think we have beautiful voices, but because we want to encourage one another with the truth. We sing the words of a Christian's daily prayer to remind one another that it ought to be our daily prayer for ourselves and for one another that God be glorified in us today. We sing the words, how great thou art, to remind one another that our Savior is not merely here to save our souls, but that our Savior is the one who created all things. He created all of the worlds, the entire universe. His power is displayed in that. We see his glory in all of what he's made. Again, walking through the woods, the forest glades, hearing the songs of the birds singing sweetly in the trees. We have a glorious God, a great God. And we worship him and praise him, not just because he saved us, but because he's good and because he's great. We sing the words of come ye sinners, poor and needy, to remind ourselves that Jesus didn't come to save the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance, among whom we are the foremost. The result of the filling of the Holy Spirit is an overflow of worship. It is true and spirit-filled worship that seeks to exalt God, yes, but also to encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. A spirit-filled Christian is a singing Christian. Secondly, a spirit-filled Christian is also a thanking Christian. 
verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We sing and we give thanks. We give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to give thanks always. This is reminiscent of what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. The Lord desires a people who are thankful, not just on one day of the year in the month of November, but thankful every day, every day, in every circumstance. We are to be characterized by thanksgiving. Again, he says in our text, always and for everything. The emphasis here is on our response to things as they come. We may not like all things as they come. We may not, in one sense, be thankful for a cancer diagnosis. We may not be thankful for a fatal accident involving a loved one. We may not be thankful to lose our job or for an ongoing illness, but we can always be thankful to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ because he never changes. His sovereign control of all things never changes. His work for us on the cross never changes. Regardless of what happens in this life, regardless of what changes may come, his love will never fail. Paul says in Romans 8, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And tenses in that verse are important. All of the verses are in the past tense. He called us before. He justified us before. He glorified us. No, that hasn't happened yet. It's as good as done in the eyes of God. A spirit-filled Christian is a thanking Christian. Finally, a spirit-filled Christian is a submitting Christian. Verse 20, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. The word for submit here means to arrange under. It is an intentional arranging of things, one thing under another. Submission requires humility. Placing yourself under the authority of another requires a recognition of the role of that person, a recognition of the role that they have in your life, and a humility in accepting that role. It's difficult, again, to think through those things if we're drunk with wine or walking in foolishness. While this concept of submitting is applied to all of us, we're to submit to one another within the body of Christ in ways that are appropriate for us to do so. In general, we submit in the context of the church to those who have authority over us. We submit to one another as we minister to one another in the body of Christ. As we use our gifts within the context of the body of Christ, we submit to that work. As we admonish one another in the context of the body of Christ, we submit to that admonishment. We do not respond in anger. Ultimately, we do this submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, Paul says. Because Jesus is head over all, because he's designed his body to be this way, he's designed the church to be this way, having gifted us so that we would build up one another in love, we ought to submit to one another, again, in ways that are appropriate for us to do so. The concept of submitting is going to carry us through the next few sections from now through chapter 6, verse 9, as we think of the application of what it means to submit in life. He's going to talk about husbands and wives, parents and children, and also to other authorities, such as in the workplace. Anytime we're called to submit within the context of the word of God, we have to keep in mind just a few things. First of all, submission does not have any indication of value. 
We are not diminished in value because we submit any more than Jesus is diminished in value as he submits to his Father in heaven. Second, submission is not predicated upon the perfection of the one to whom we submit. We're not called to submit to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ only when we are perfectly obedient to Christ. We're called to submit to our governing authorities and the Lord knows that they're not all perfect. But we are to give honor to those to whom honor is due. Paul says that in Romans. Submission finally is ultimately a function of our submission to the Lord and we said that already. Paul says that we submit out of reverence to Christ. We're called to submit in various kinds of relationship. We're commanded to submit in various kinds of relationship. Our submission is ultimately in obedience to Christ because he's head over all. A spirit-filled Christian is a submitting Christian. All three of these things are indicative of the Spirit's work in the lives of believers. We see the work of the Spirit when believers speak to one another for their joy and edification. When the aim of worship is both the glory of God and the good of one another. We see the work of the Spirit in believers' lives when they're thankful, knowing that God is at work in us and in all things for our good. And finally, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers who willingly submit to one another in ways that are appropriate. And again, we understand that a part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to establish the church as a dwelling place of God for the Spirit. And so we are to participate in his work in doing so. Well, this is all of what it means to walk in wisdom, taking care with how we think about our life and our love for one another in the body of Christ. Specifically, we're told that we must think rightly about the times that we're living in. We must think rightly about how we are to accomplish the Lord's will. And finally, we must think rightly about our service to one another. I'll leave you with this quote at the end here. One author says that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord and continues by acknowledging his truth and his ways. He quotes Ecclesiastes 9.1, Righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. The way to wisdom and the way of life is the way of God. The only power that can overcome a man's foolishness and turn him to wisdom is salvation, turning to God through Jesus Christ. Turning from foolishness to wisdom is turning from self to God. And it is God's own word that is able to give us wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He says, being a Christian leads us to walk worthily, humbly, in unity, separated from the world's ways, in love, in light, and also leads us to walk in wisdom, end quote. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is the end for which God has saved us. Not so that we would continue to live foolish lives, but so that we would live out a life that indicates that we are heirs to the hope of eternal life. May the Lord, through his spirit, grant to each one of us wisdom to walk in a manner worthy of his calling of us in Christ. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, which is true. Thank you for your word, which sanctifies us. Thank you for the reminder of all the different ways that you are at work in us through your Holy Spirit. 
Thank you that we can participate in your work in building up the church as we submit to the work of the Spirit, as we love one another. Father, we pray that you'd help us to walk not as unwise, but as wise. Help us to do that for our good and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.